Writing in the Age of Me Too was a panel conversation at Word on the Street 2019 with Gwen Benaway, Taya Matonji, S.K. Lee, and moderator Aparitha Bandari. This discussion touches on writing about sexual violence and how writing can act as a mechanism for healing and articulation. Warm welcome to you all, and in fact, very warm because it's a lovely sunny day. My name is Helen Walsh. I'm with uh, Diaspora Dialogues, and we're delighted to have this conversation today. As we start, we'd like to acknowledge the land that we're meeting on here today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. This territory is part of the Dish with One Spoon Treaty, an agreement between the Anishinaabek, the Haudenosaunee, and allied nations to peacefully care and share for the resources around the Great Lakes. Territory is also covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. Today, Toronto is home to many Indigenous people, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to meet and work on this territory. It is my delight now to introduce our moderator for the session, uh, who will introduce our esteemed speakers. Aparatha Bandari is an arts and life reporter in Toronto. She's been lots of published in Canadian media, including CBC, the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, and Walrus. Her areas of interest and expertise lie in the intersection of gender, culture, and ethnicity. She's a producer and co-host of the Hindi language podcast, kabardarpodcast.com. So please give them all a very warm welcome. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. And I'm so delighted to moderate this panel on writing in the age of Me Too. We have a fantastic panel over here, and I'll introduce them one by one. Uh, to my immediate left is Gwen Benaway a trans girl of Anishinaabe and Métis descent. She has published three collections of poetry, Ceremonies for the Dead, Passage, and Holy Wild, and was the editor for an anthology of fantasy short stories, Maiden, Mother, and Crone, Fantastical Trans Femme. Her writing has been critically acclaimed and widely published in Canada. She was a finalist for the Dane Oglivy Prize for LGBTQ Writers from the Writers' Trust of Canada, the Lambda Literary Award for Trans Poetry, and the National Magazine Awards and Digital Publishing Awards for her personal essay, A Body Like Home. Her fourth collection of poetry, Aperture, is forthcoming from Book Hug in spring 2020, and she's currently also editing a book of creative nonfiction, Trans Girl in Love, forthcoming from Strange Light in 2020. And she lives in Toronto and is a PhD student at UFT in Women and Gender Studies Institute. Then we have SK Ali, whom I'm going to call Sajda. She's the author of YA novels, Love from A to Z, and the 2018 Morris Award finalist, Saints and Misfits, which won critical acclaim for its portrayal of an unapologetic Muslim-American teen's life and was on many top 10 YA novels of 2017 lists, including from Entertainment Weekly, Kirkus Reviews, and the American Library Association. It was also long-listed as a CBC Canada Reads title. She has a degree in creative writing, and written about Muslim life for various media, including the Toronto Star and NBC News. And she lives in Toronto with her family, which includes a very vocal cat named Yeti. Her picture book, The Proudest Blue, just this week made the New York Times bestsellers list. So congratulations. And then we have Taya Mutonji, and she's an award-winning poet and writer born in Congo, Kinshasa. She now lives and writes in Scarborough, Ontario, where she was named Emerging Writer of the Year 2017 by the Ontario Book Publishers Organization. Shut Up, You're Pretty is her first book. 
I wanted to open with this question about Me Too. So the hashtag was first used by Tarana Burke back in 2006 with regards to sexual abuse of women in color. These days, of course, we're hearing a lot about Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. It's sort of, you know, in the in the news a lot. I think for me, the first time I really, truly personally negotiated with this term was actually after the whole Gian Gomeshi scandal, um, you know, had erupted in, in Canada. And there was this hashtag at that time called Bin Rape Never Reported. And at that time, because there were so many of these women on Twitter, on social media, just sort of, you know, using this hashtag. And for me, um, as somebody of a woman of color, I'd often thought of this issue as something that is more pervasive in, you know, cultures on the margins or whatever. But this was a time where I was like, oh, my God, this is this is everywhere. So I'm kind of curious as to when did you for you did this sort of whole movement or, or this idea become like such a such a such a reality? The idea of Me Too or... In relation, I mean, we've always we've heard about, you know, sexual harassment and gender sort of bias at work and stuff like that. But this idea of a movement of a kind of like, you know, of, of some sort of coming together, a collective. When did it first really, you know, strike a chord with you? For me, probably in university. Yeah, I used to just work in with like a bunch of different people um, at like the school pub. And naturally on campuses, there were a lot of different cases and a lot of women were not they weren't going to like let it go easily. So it was nice to kind of be part of that. So for me, it was a lot, a little bit earlier before it became public and before it became trending in the media, I was already in circles where women were not about to like let that slide. Yeah. And I, I liked what you, what you uh, mentioned about that you thought it was something happening more with communities in the margins. And when uh, I wrote Saints and Misfits, which was a novel uh, where the protagonist had been sexually assaulted by somebody who was considered holy in her community. Uh, when I wrote, first wrote that, and it, it came out in early part of uh, 2017, before the Me Too movement really took off on social media. And at the beginning, when I was going to my first event, where I was going to be speaking to readers and publishing community, I told my publicist, I don't want anyone to ask me about personal question having to do with, you know, the sexual assault. And she was like, okay. But then at the end of the year, I got to the point because there were so many voices saying, this is not just in one community. This is something that's global. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. I got to the point where I was courageous enough to address it in a talk, like in a, in a personal way. And I think that's one of the, the biggest like advantages of all voices joining together because you do have this sense that if I talk about this and it's, it's bringing stigma to just one community or my community, especially being from a Muslim community, which has, there's so much stereotypes of misogyny about the Muslim community when I know growing up that it's a misogyny that I faced in different places and it wasn't just in one community. I faced it in my university classes. I faced it in different forms. And so like that was the, the real awakening of like women and men just are people saying we're not going to stay silent about it. I think it just it just brought it all out in the front. And I was like I moved to a space where I I felt comfortable talking about it. I think for me when we had this moment of me too starting to trend across social media 
it originally was a hashtag created by a black woman and, and, you know, so much of black women's labor, particularly intellectual labor is always sort of, I guess, taken, <laughs> stolen from them. And so there had been all these conversations that had already been started and happened, but then Me Too really came up into this cultural moment uh, where it was trending on social media because white women started using it. And once white cis women started coming forward and particularly, you know, sort of famous, wealthy, beautiful white cis women started coming forward and talking about Me Too, it kind of caught on in this really fascinating wave. But sitting there watching that moment happen, I think there were all these different waves that were going on. So there was sort of a mainstream uh, white conversation. There were conversations happening in communities of color, in indigenous communities, in queer and trans spaces. There were all of these multiple conversations that were sort of initiated by this moment of hypervisibility. Of course, communities of color and queer communities, trans communities have been talking about sexual violence for a really long time and organizing and developing responses about it. But Me Too sort of brought this sudden focus and interest from larger white publications, news publications, social media platforms that I think in a lot of ways exploited a lot of the work that had already been, been going on and then brought this hyper focus onto it. And we've seen that expand into things like with the, the Brent Kavanaugh. And so there's this moment now because of the focus and the interest where sexual violence is being talked about in a way that it's never been talked about before. My like fear with it, and I was feeling this while I was watching Me, Me Too sort of happen on social media, is all of these survivors, particularly survivors of color, particularly queer and trans survivors of color, coming forward and sharing their experiences into the public space, and no one having the skills or training to respond to that. So these people were, you know, sharing their stories, and really, was there anyone to hold it? And there really wasn't anyone to hold it. So it was this collective outpouring of pain, which can open doors for people, but there wasn't anything coming after it. And so what interests me about Me Too is, you know, well, now that we've had this moment where people, you know, basically white people are caring and white institutions are caring about sexual violence, how do we start to move that conversation from cataloging, you know, damage and harm and sexual violence into conversations around, well, how do we hold this? How do we build spaces for survivor that are survivor centric that move forward? That's the conversation I'm waiting to come. And I don't think we're, we've had it yet. And you're welcome to also talk to each other. I'm just here as a facilitator and I'll open it up to the audience shortly because I'd rather audience questions than me. But I'm kind of curious. I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, its origins and where it has become, where we're now, you know, quite regularly hearing about, you know, whatever is going on with the Epstein case, case or uh, Weinstein or Kavanaugh or whatnot. But, you know, the original kind of source of women of color, you know, like the working class women, just the average stories of people perhaps not being highlighted so much. And I wonder if you had any, any thoughts on that. Is this something that you have reflected on of these voices perhaps not being as part of the dominant culture as, as these other stories. Just to echo on, on what Gwen was saying, because I, I, I was so young when I got involved in so, survivor groups and being kind of part of this culture where we were talking about it openly and sharing our experiences and finding ways to heal, by the time we got to the Me Too and having it attached to Hollywood, I struggled with that because it, it some, sometimes felt a little bit superficial. So I had a, I was surprised at um, some of the, the way that it, it started in a marginalized community, not to say that we claim that, 
but it's like it's been going on for so long and we needed this like white voice to push it forward which was just shocking to me so by the time we got to the me too trending online I, my response was to leave online because i had been doing this work for many years i had been surrounded by people who were interested in activists and trying to inspire reform and change and education and then i was just a bit shocked at how um it was now trending and we were not even talking about the actual issues we were more focusing on the fact that it was trending like oh now me too is everywhere as opposed to like actually highlighting the stories that we're hearing and as Gwen suggested trying to facilitate ways to like deal with this not just share it but also like take this thing that we now have and how do we rebuild from here how do we move forward and how do we grow that's something that i felt wasn't really part of the conversation in me too and maybe i just you know maybe i shut it down and i walked away too quickly i don't know but um that's definitely something that i was a little bit disappointed as and i would hope that with now that we have had that year of me too moving forward what we're basically trying to do is to inspire that kind of education and conversation that'd be really neat, nice to see i'd like to also just bring up like the the positive aspect also of like the trending because then there was like different groups claiming their space in that as well so there was uh, muslim women speaking out and something came out of that which is that um you know there's several organizations in the US that now got set up looking at spiritual abuse in mosques and uh, one in LA and one in Chicago and then um just in Canada Ingrid Madsen she actually set up a training and like that she's been taking to different muslim communities and so there was and there's a whole project going on that she just started and so there was some there was something that evolved out of that out of muslim women saying it ha it's happening to us too it's happening here it's happening there so yeah so i'm kind of pleased to see that it's come to a space where people are talking about it in in mosques and you know in more of an organizational setting and implementing things so to see it reflected in the mainstream allowed a marginalized group to come forward i mean i think for me you know as a trans woman trans women and the issues of sexual violence and particular sexual assault is a terrain that never gets talked about in public spaces at all trans women are assumed to be sexual predators are assumed to be deviants and rapists in bathrooms there to molest women all these sorts of things about trans women that's what trans misogyny has created as an image of trans women and so trans women are often considered you know unrapeable and because you know we're inherently dangerous we're inherently predators and so for me when i was dealing with my own sexual assault and seeking services there there weren't a lot of services for trans women almost none in toronto and there weren't resources online talking about it and there there wasn't a lot of um personal stories for it So I wrote and this is in the moment of me too I wrote some essays that were personal stories around my experiences of sexual assault. And what's been interesting for me from that experience is and I mean it's kind of horrible and traumatic is getting messages from other trans women, you know, in Toronto and elsewhere in the country, even in the states about their experiences of sexual assault. And sometimes, you know, sending me messages late at night sort of saying, you know, I was sexually assaulted by this person and and there's nothing i can do i can't go to the police they've done this before they've done this to my friend really difficult stories coming out and and being shared 
And that to me, you know, highlighted the ways in which I think Me Too sort of fails people, you know, because again, I had shared all these stories, they were sharing their stories, but the conditions of our lives, conditions of humanity, you know, trans women can't seek justice, whatever justice is, from things like policing or the court system. I and mean, most women in Canada, women of color, can't seek justice through those means. So you share this pain and you experience this hurt, but what what process can can come from that? And so I kind of questioned... I mean, I think there is value, as you say, in talking about these things and bringing them forward. But when, you know, there's no sort of capacity to change the circumstances that are causing this kind of violence that's happening, it becomes a painful exercise of witnessing each other's pain and, and sort of being unable to do anything really about it other than to say, you know, I'm here and I see you and I understand and I'm sorry. And, and that's all I can do for you. And I wish we didn't live in this condition, but we do. You know, and so that's, I think, a failure of Me Too in a way. You know, representation and awareness only gets you so far. Just one more question on, on this front before we turn to the arts and dealing with Me Too. I mean, I recently heard this podcast, which was about warehouses full of evidence where, uh, you know, of, of um, uh, well, basically a serial rapist where police didn't, this is in the States, but I, th- Minneapolis maybe, where police didn't, take seriously a prostitute's first testimony about a rapist. And then, you know, this person went on um, and there were many assaults before something happened. And now there are these warehouses full of evidence that the police needs to actually trawl through. And it made for a fascinating podcast. Similarly, when we heard about Jeffrey Epstein and, and how it was the very dogged pursuit of one particular journalist at one particular newspaper, you know, Vanity Fair had that story a while ago, but didn't follow up, blah, blah, blah. I'm just kind of curious, do you think it's become something of consumption? Are we consuming this news or is it like, is, is art being made up? Like, how do you negotiate Me Too as writers, as, as people who might have, you know, dealt with this or heard about it or held the space for other people? When I started drafting my collection, I didn't anticipate the Me Too movement to come at all. And I didn't think that because my collection is a short story of stories, so I didn't really think that the stories that dealt with sexual assault would be the one that would get the most talked about or have the most areas of discussion. And that's primarily because Me Too hadn't started yet. And then we woke up one day and I was midway through my edits and it's all over the news. So when I was doing this kind of work, I wasn't fully thinking of the social impact any kind of work dealing with assault could have on people that consume it. And now I'm aware of that now. And when I look at it retrospectfully, I can definitely say that there are things I would have done differently. And something that I definitely didn't anticipate, as Gwen was saying again, is when people get access to this kind of work. And because with writers, especially in Canada, there is a sense of accessibility that you don't really have with maybe a musician or an actor. I was getting also a lot of messages from women I had met throughout my life. These were like maybe someone I took a dance class with when I was 10, like random people that I had lost touch with. Just to, because the access of someone that they know, right, in making work of this topic made it seem a bit more real than Me Too. And so they would email and text and Twitter and to tell me their stories and then ask, what do I do? Or where do I turn to? Or how do I? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And so I found myself one day sitting in front of my computer, 
called a bunch of my friends. And I'm like, I need to find links and resources. I need to give this something when women message me because they're messaging me all the time. And I felt I found that if Me Too was supposed to do all this stuff, a year later, I'm now also personally doing that work, which I don't mind. I don't think it's a problem, but it's, it's again, that feeling that Me Too might have failed us because it opened up this conversation and then it said goodbye. I'm so glad to hear that for some, some communities and some people that wasn't the case because that definitely wasn't my experience. Yeah, like all I could do was be like, here are some links that I came up with. I, I like, how else can I help you? How else can I assist? But I'm noticing that when you make art and people have access to it directly, more than a trending topic, more than actually, yeah, a trending topic, it feels a bit more tangible, perhaps. I, I had a similar experience to Gwen and Shay, how um, people reached out to me to say, you know, this happened to me. And it was really sad stories that, like, I felt like, again, like a holder of stories. But, you know, I had the same kind of thought, like, how do I help them? So it was good that at the same time, organizations were reaching out to me to say, you know, we're using your novel as part of this project and stuff. So then I had like a list of like places that I could actually connect these survivors to as well. In terms of art and like if it becomes a consumption thing, I just think that any art is like, good art is where you get people talking and where you get people sharing and connecting. And so there might be a voyeuristic aspect for some people but on the whole, I see people engaging with the content and actually just even sharing our stories, even making one person feel like they're not alone and that there are, you know, there are ways to reach out and there are ways to, you know, heal and things. I think that's still something like that's like that's the biggest thing in the world still. And so I, I don't know, I think art does have that you know, consumption kind of, you know, voyeuristic. I'm just like, in, you know, just collecting or just watching this and not really doing anything about it. But I feel like they're, they're like from my experience with my community, I feel like there's been changes that I've seen. And maybe it's, I'm privileged because of that, because like you were saying, that access to justice is not there for every community, but I'm kind of proud of my community in that way that it's moving to places of like, we need to do something about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for me, I, I do think a lot of it is consumptive. I, I, I think a lot of it is consumption that's happening in this moment. I think there's this tradition where particularly for women of color, you know, queer trans women of color, there's this expectation that in order to be heard, to be listened to, or to be of, thought of as any value as a thinker or a person, you sort of have to perform your trauma in public. You have to show up and show your, your scars to sort of be like, take me seriously, I have a right to speak. And there is an entertainment aspect of that, I think, particularly for white audiences, mainstream audiences, but almost for everyone in some sense. You sort of have to show up and show your scars to be taken as real, to be listened to, and thought that you have something to say. And so I think with Me Too, this gets amplified in that as a survivor of sexual violence, you have to come forward and sort of present yourself as the object of, of this violence in order to have 
the right to speak on it, to be listened, to be heard on it. And people sort of like look at you and are like, oh, okay, yeah, wow, thank you for sharing. Well, that's really important. You know, when they walk away and what does that, what does that sharing really do for them in terms of their daily lives? Does it transform the conditions of your living? It doesn't. You're just used. And that's your purpose is to be this object of consumption. So I think Me Too, no, I'm not saying that Me Too caused that. I think Me Too is a continuation of the ways in which we just consume, particularly women of color's bodies in public, particularly their pain. I'm going to open it up to questions in, in a couple of minutes. I was reading this um, New Yorker article by Emily Nussbaum, where she was talking about how a lot of TV in this sort of post, uh, in this Me Too movement had, you know, started to address these, some, some shows did it better than others, and it sort of went through it. And she had this interesting part in it where she said that, you know, in literature, you're able to have this conversation of, uh, in a bit more complicated way. In TV, you cannot because the audience is looking for something and you have to cater to that audience. And nevertheless, this show did it, blah, blah, blah. I'm kind of curious as to what, you know, your thoughts on that. Like, does literature or, or your writing give you a space to explore or to deal with or, or something, of, of some sort of a truth that can come out through this form? Yeah, so I think a lot of, for a lot of writers, writing is a way to process what they know and what they understand and what, you know, things. And I think that for us, Speaking for myself, it was a way for me to process things that had happened to me. So for Saints and Misfits, it was a way for me to process what had happened to me earlier and how it affected my way of like looking at the world. And it was a way for me to trace my resilience. In terms of nuance and stuff, well, just on, on the whole, I think literature does give you a broader landscape to look at nuances. And to d dive deeper. I still think that like, we're still like for, for a person of a Muslim background, it's still tough to challenge the tropes and the stereotypes and the understandings, quote unquote, that people have about Muslims and my community. And I really don't think that I would have been able to write the kind of novel I did, which looks at a tough topic like sexual assault in the Muslim community, but without demonizing the community, I don't think I would have been able to write this novel without all of the strides made in like people calling for more authentic stories representing um, marginalized communities because you're always hitting up against what a Muslim story is supposed to look like and what, you know, I know that that's still ongoing because I still see stories where it's the poor Muslim oppressed girl, you know, trying to get away from her culture, her community, her, you know. So I, I think that for me to write the novel I did, which, which has an unapologetic Muslim teen who's looking at this hard topic within her community, I could only do it in 2017. Like it was, which is sad to me, but yeah, that's just the state of things. I'm going to quote Toni Morrison just, I think, because it's, it's timely. She wrote in, I think it was 1991, she was writing an introduction to a collection on autobiography and memoir. And of course, she's a brilliant fiction writer. And she sort of talked about how when sort of Black writers were first being published, the first narratives that came forward were primarily used to convince white audiences that Black folks were human, 
right? And so there was this aim towards the, that writing and it didn't show the inner lives of the people who were speaking because it was really about sort of trying to convince white readers, white, white audiences that black folks were human, right? So it's, it's this violent, in some ways, this violent legacy. And she was saying, you know, I come to writing and I write because I want to imagine a space into my writing that answers those questions of the inner life. I come to, to writing as a way to imagine lives that have been lost to me, lived experiences that have been lost to me, or that were never shown or seen. And my coming to this writing is this, I don't want to say reclamation or repair, but it's this act of, of creation and imagination that's returning a humanity that has been violently, violently taken. And so sometimes I think around sexual writing, around sexual violence for myself as an Indigenous trans woman, when I come to writing, for me, what, what writing lets me do is imagine a return to humanity for myself, for people like me, for the people I grew up with, for my community. And, and that possibility of, even though we're being consumed, of creating a space where people like me can imagine themselves inside and and be have some kind of reciprocal rec recognition between the text themselves and and me as a writer. That's that's the kind of and I'm not saying it as beautifully as Toni Morrison did, but that's what I want for my writing. I think I struggled really hard to like separate my personal from whatever I was working on. Then when I started writing my book, because I was like, I'm going to write fiction and I'm going to craft this character from bottom up and I'm going to give her all these things. Um, I really wanted to convince myself that I wasn't doing any personal work. I really wanted to believe that this was career labor. It had nothing to do with Taya personally. Everything's fine. And then the second I finished writing my book and I submitted it and my editor was like, no more give backs. It's done. I like had a breakdown and I was in bed for like a month. And then I realized, yeah, so I definitely dealt with a lot of those things through my writing with the conviction that I was not doing that. Now I'm, I'm, when I approach writing now, I'm a lot more aware of myself as an art, an art, a writer, but also as myself as a human and a person of color and a woman and a survivor. And these are all things that prior to writing my book, I didn't want to identify as. And, you know, I, I went to a predominantly white school in high school and I wasn't exposed to much literature or even art from people of color, period. And when I came back to Scarborough, I went to a relatively multicultural university campus, that's when I first got access to Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou. And I started reading all these incredible stories by these incredible Black women. And I also got really sad because the one thing I could see that was a recurring story was that they wrote about these Black women that had been abused and raped and enslaved and in domestic relationships. And then to also close that, those books and be like, well, that's also my story was a very difficult process for me. And so when I got to writing my book, I really wanted to be like, no, 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 I'm being a professional author here and there's no personal work being done. And in retrospect, I guess that's something that I can say Me Too might have helped with that. The fact that at the time that I was editing my manuscript, there was also all these women, both personal and some that I just read of online that were sharing these stories. It definitely helped me read we focus and it's okay to be a kind of author or an artist that uses their own personal stories in order to create any other story. It's like, it's okay to do that. And for whatever reason, and I'm going to blame it on 
on the world that we live in. It's so easy because of women, like every time we write something, whether it's true or whether it's nonfiction or not, the world is going to tell us it's our story anyway. And I I didn't want that. Like I was like really adamant. And then I realized, well, whether it's true or not true, whether I do that or I don't do that, I can't control how people are going to react to it. That's something I have to let go of. So I've let go of that. And I approach my writing with a lot more kindness today than I did when I was writing my my collection. Yeah, and like I, I don't know if today... I would have written my collection the way that I, I wrote it had it not been for me too. And that's something that I, I, I don't think I'll ever get the answer to that. But I'm very grateful that I, I feel like me too was kind of a backbone, like a soundboard for me while I was doing this work. And I, I guess I'm kind of grateful that I didn't have that because it's like uncomfortable things. So I can, I can like call my editor and be like, so I'm writing the story. I need help with my personal state. So I did turn to the media and it was, it was a very conflicting relationship for me. So speaking about complicate, like a complicated world, I mean, this, this whole, uh, I'm just wondering again, if literature provides this format where we can write complicated things, because, you know, when we talk about Me Too or, or sexual violence or, or however, you know, we want to look at this issue, there, it's complicated in that oftentimes there are women who are enablers, oftentimes, you know, there are layers of privilege that we don't quite understand or unpack. So is literature again able to give us a space to be able to look into some of these uh, more complicated, like Toni Morrison's worlds were often extremely complicated uh, spaces, you know, um, bad people came in all sorts of shapes and sizes. So I'm just kind of curious whether literature allows us to hold, hold that space too. I, this is a very unpopular opinion, but, but I'll give it. I think we always have to be careful what we put into literature and what we ask of the page and what we ask of writing. I think there's John Brand would say, you know, there's ruptures in writing. Yeah, there are. They, they create these other worlds and that's their, their power. But writing is also a tool of nationalism. And writing has always been used to legitimize the nation state and to prop up systems of oppression. Writing has been used to mythologize what being Canadian is, right? That's a whole genre of Canlet. So writing in and of itself can be very violent. Literature can be very violent and do a lot of harm in the world. So when we look to writing and say, you know, heal me or, or give me this space to figure it out, you know, I, sometimes I think we're putting a kind of pressure on the page that's probably dangerous. We're probably coming into it in a way that might be harmful to us and, and other people. I think it's better to look at literature as creating possibilities. And to think in these worlds, there might be possibilities to think through, feel through. I mean, we often, we, you know, feel through the emotions of what's happened to us. I think that's mostly what I got from Toni Morrison's writing is its brilliance, but also what it felt. You know, there's a felt history there. I think it can do that work for us, but we have to be really careful not to ask it to fix us, to solve our problems, to tell us what to think, to give us that myth mythology to, to build our lives around. Yeah, and, and for me, it's, I learned early not to write to the white gaze, because that's what happens when you come from a community that's, that's just mal-represented. I don't call it misrepresented, I call it mal-represented, because there was deliberate negative stereotyping, negative stories circulated for generations about Muslims. And so when you're young and you grow up like that, you become a critical thinker very quickly. And because what your spaces look like as a Muslim and, you know, coming from a Muslim home, going to the mosque, 
it's not what they're telling you you are out there on when you turn on the radio or the news or whatever or you know movies and so then you're like you know this the way people are looking at me is not the truth so i'm not going to write to that gaze i'm not going to write to that gaze that says this is what your lives are like and when you brought up like just the the cataloging the holding the space and for me writing these stories is a way to capture the lives that have not been captured and because i had this aha that if if you were to look back at muslims stories the way i'd grown up and you if there was a time capsule that captured all the instances of muslims coming into like public consciousness through movies stories whatever it would not reflect the reality of our lives and i had this moment that i was like nobody captured all the things that we all the fun and the joy and the stuff that we did that was wonderful in like the experiences that we had like and so that was that's what's driving me is to write our stories and i write them like with i think art is honesty and i write them with honesty and not in a way that's like you know everything is uh peaches and cream and roses here but it's it's with honesty but the honesty includes things that maybe the white gaze will be like really this is like this is true and i'm very privileged i recognize because i'm i get to work with an editor who's the only muslim editor in children's publishing in new york and because i work with her i'm she she understands what i'm saying and she lets my stories be raw and let lets them be on you know just with the long arm of like wait would audiences understand this and i think that's what makes my writing stand out it's that aspect of like not everything is familiar to your tropes that you might have you know had about muslims so yeah i think literature is a space for that and it's a record of our lives and i want to continue to record the unseen stories yeah i'm i'm definitely on that same boat where i've i've grown to see such an importance in like doing work like being an activist and a author at the same time it's reframe my relationship with with writing but also with like myself and even just the way i approach the world in a general sense just echoing back on that idea of just how many young women specifically black women were like coming to me for for healing was kind of incredible in some ways because i i just i never i would have never expected that and to think that it's possible for a, one person to create any kind of art form that gives space for somebody else to come to them that's pretty cool and i don't take that lightly and it wasn't the plan when i got into writing that i was just writing because i wanted to i liked writing there was there was no plan there and so like yeah the the work let me the work decided what we were going to do together um and i'm i'm grateful for that for sure so i'm going to open it up to the audience i'm sure there's tons of questions i have lots more anybody want to start yes Yeah, so the social change that is required beyond just writing and reading. I don't know if that's just my personal experience, but I definitely do think that we're at a place where we're no longer focusing on sharing stories, but we're trying to now write stories about how to move forward now that we've done that, which like I interrupted like I was working on a novel and I I interrupted that entirely because I was like this is a bigger topic for me. 
where it's like, it's no longer about now talking about stories of pain. Let's now talk about stories of healing or let's not talking about stories of recovering or sharing. Let's just like, let's just take Like, let's hold those stories of pain and then use them to tell new stories, you know, of like how to proceed. Because I think what people might be looking for when they come to you with these stories, or at least when they come to me, they are looking for a fix. They're looking for an answer. They're like, where's the light switch? Make this pain go away. And how do you tell someone, I don't think it, I can't do that for you. I can't do that work. You, you don't tell someone that. You don't know, how, I don't know how to find the words to even begin that kind of sentence. But if perhaps I can do a suggestive, if I can share, I, I don't know, if I can do something that resembles what they're looking for through telling stories, as the medium that we all approach to get to here in the collective space, then that's what I want to do. And I think, again, what Graham was saying about the failure of me too, is that like, I know that there are institutions that deal with mental health, that deal with survivors. I know they're out there. And like, I'm like waiting for them to become the forward voices of me too, to like give us those tools. And I think we all are. And it's not necessarily fair to expect that of any organization, the same way people who read our work can expect that of us. Right. So we're, we're just at this limbo period where I guess there's going to be a change. Like I can feel it. And I, I'm, I'm certain that most of us here can also recognize that that's where we are now. We're like, OK, we have this pain now. What? You know what I mean? But can I just push back on that a little bit? Because, I mean, you know, what Gwen was saying that, you know, they're, they're all, you know, holding these stories. But what do we do next? How do we move forward? Like, you know, history of sexual violence isn't new. The Me Too hashtag is newish. It's trending or whatever. And. Just to use a, a personal example, uh, you know, a recent Bollywood movie um, is incredibly misogynistic and sexist, but is one of the biggest blockbuster hits in India and even abroad. Now, is that the movie or is it the people who are consuming it? So I'm kind of curious as, as a society, what, where are we supposed to be going? What are we supposed, as writers, you can write and, and articulate these issues, but as a society, you know, where should we, where should this be heading? Like what now after after me too, right? Like what's next? I think for me, oh, I don't know. I think of what Audre Lorde said around working across difference and how the process of revolution and social change requires us to meaningfully understand, to meaningfully understand difference, not as a threat or not as something to be consumed, but as this important consideration of life. And then for us to find a way to take a risk to come together to work across our differences to try and facilitate the kind of society we want to live in. And, you know, so I, I'm less interested in like the question of what can we do as a society to deal with me too. And I'm interested in the question of like, how do we better support, you know, trans women of color who are victims of sexual violence or how in communities of color do we talk around sexual violence and build restorative justice processes? I mean, with Sherman Alexa and what happened with Diaz, we've seen when, when men of color enact sexual violence, how do we bring them into justice processes where they're not being discarded or torn down? Because we know the conditions of their lives are such that they're so vulnerable, but that they're still being held accountable for what they've done. Like those nuanced conversations, and I see people starting that work, that's where we need to put our energy and our focus. And I don't think it's at that big global social level. I think it's at the community level. I think it's at the interpersonal between us as people that we do that work of working across difference to actually have that kind of revolution that we want and need. And yes, I think at the end of the day, 
we probably have to fundamentally change the society that we're living. And more representation in the literature is not going to get us there. It's going to take us as individuals at the community level taking the risks and having those conversations and bringing that into our lived and daily lives. I think it's also a matter of staying vigilant and not some of the, you know, the activism, which was like calling out individuals, calling out organizations, all of that can't just die down either. Cause I think sometimes we can get to a space where it's like, okay, you know, do you get fatigued from it? But I don't think we should. I think we should continue to like Gwen said at the community level, you know, just hold people responsible and, and just anecdotally, I know like my book has been like shared with young people and it's caused some like people to come forward and at the community levels and say, yes, it happened to me. And it was and naming the individual and things like that. So that's little, you know, little, like it's, it's, it's like, like an anecdote, but I think it's happening and I hope it happens that it can, we continue to be stay vigilant and, 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 and act change at like at the level where it needs to happen. I, I like agree. Like it's like something that I don't know if you guys ex like expected that that would be the trajectory of your writing career that suddenly you're like, I'm going to focus on yes, doing the, the work I love, which is writing, but also to be a community member for my community and then for any other communities that is using my work in order to get this conversation out there. I don't know if anyone ever goes into anything with that expectation for themselves. And yet here we are all kind of echoing the same idea that we feel not responsible, but we feel like as members of society and of our communities that we want to be doing this work. You know, it's like a conscious decision. So how do we rally people, including women who say we're not feminist? And because there has been some backlash as well, right? With the, with the Me Too movement where um, there have been some interesting kind of, you know, men saying, oh, can we not talk to women anymore and, and stuff. So there has been that kind of backlash too. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's Margaret Atwood writing that scene in the Testaments about, you know, this call out around sexual violence gone wrong. And I don't know, getting in the Guardian and, and giving newspaper interviews where she, Margaret Atwood sort of says, well, you know, we could solve the problem of sexual violence if we just gave men a dating guide. They just need a guide to dating yeah. etiquette. LOL. That's what, yes. Yes, this is what Margaret Atwood said in The Guardian. She was like, um, guys just don't know what to do on date. That's why they're raping people. And I was like, that's Margaret Atwood. That's very wrong. I got into a Twitter fight with her and it, it went yeah. on and she was retweeting me to her followers. And I was like, Margaret Atwood, th this is just bad. This is just bad. She was like, I'm talking to survivors. And I'm like, aren't you? I think you're in Yorkville. Like, I, I don't know what you're doing, but like, girl. So... The, yeah, I what I, I guess. Sorry to answer your question. I think I think you're right. There's a lot of women writers that are aligned with patriarchy. There's a lot of women writers that are aligned with racism and anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity and homophobia and transphobia. Like there is this backlash against people coming forward and trying to make meaningful change. How do we reclaim feminism as a word, as an idea? I think we have to live it and and show up and trash Margaret Atwood in public and just bring back like she's not a feminist. You're not a feminist anyway. I, mean, like, I agree. I can't add anything. <laughs> like I generally am waiting for someone to suggest a panel on dissecting Margaret Atwood because like I grew up reading her and then to turn around and have her BS on the news. I'm like, what are you? This is gaslighting, dude. 
what are you doing? So it's really weird. And I mean, I know in terms of Islamophobia, it's the same thing. There are women who call themselves feminists, white feminism, that doesn't see any other form of understanding of a woman's right as being feminism unless it follows the European model, you know? So, yep, Margaret Atwood, panel next. Okay, so I wanted to thank our panelists so very much for coming. We have Tia Mutonji, Aske Ali, and uh, Gwen Benaway. Thank you for attending. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>